You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Terry Wilder with The Body. Welcome to This Positive Life. I'm here today with Paul, and today I'll be talking with Paul about living with HIV and his experience as a long-term non-progressor. Paul, welcome to This Positive Life. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. Sure. Nice to be here. Great. Well, let's just start with you telling our readers and listeners about your personal history of living with HIV. Specifically, how did you find out you were HIV positive? I found out that I was HIV positive back in 1985. Um, I just went to a public health clinic with my partner at the time and another couple and took the test and found out um, few nervous weeks later that I was indeed positive. My partner, fortunately for him, was not positive. And that's how I found out for sure that I was HIV positive. I'd suspected that I had been for some time, given that I was a gay male who lived in New York City who knew a lot of people who were getting sick and at that point dying. So it was unsettling to hear, but not a big surprise. And so you got tested in New York City? actually, in Southern California. So how long do you think you'd been living with HIV before you tested positive? Well, it's it's believed by myself and uh, numerous doctors that I actually became infected in 1981. In the summer of 1981, I had a severe illness with what is now called the classic symptoms of when a person seroconverts to becoming positive, and I was quite ill for two weeks. And at that time, in New York City, as, as you probably know, and some of the the listeners and readers might know, it was just beginning to really break loose in New York City and some other places. So I knew many guys who were having night sweats and fevers and losing a lot of weight and the skin cancers were appearing. So it's believed that I, I became infected in 1981 while living in New York City. Okay. I was 20 years old. Let me ask about, I'm assuming several years later, you had a CD4 count done when that was available. What What was your first CD4 count? I've always been in a normal range, and I think the first CD4 count I had was at the beginning of when they were doing them, so it had been in the early 90s. I think I was in the 900s or low, 1,000s. And what is your CD4 count now? Um, it's 1,024. Okay. So you have been told that you're what we call a long-term non-progressor. Yes, that's correct. And what is, exactly is the definition of that term? Well, there's a few variables, but basically it's someone who is HIV positive and they're able to maintain a normal T-cell count, so that would be, say, between 800 and 1,300. They also have an undetectable viral load. The measure of that right now is under 50, and they're not on any HIV medications and has had, and have never been on HIV medications, have no symptoms, no opportunistic infections, and it's judged basically for seven years or more would be a long-term non-progressor. So you're not taking any antiretrovirals at this time? Yes, that's correct. And you never have? Right. I'm not taking any now, and I never have. Do you take any supplements or do yoga or? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I did, um, when I was much younger, I took a lot of supplements, but uh, for whatever reason, I just got out of the habit. Um, I have had a highly physically active life. I'm now 49, so it's tapered off a bit. But uh, throughout the whole course of my infection, 
uh, well, when I was much younger um, at that time in 81 and through the 80s, I was a ballet dancer. I swam, lifted weights, did yoga. So in terms of the physical activities, that's what I did then. Now, these days, I'm more inclined to just go on long walks or hikes, swim. I still meditate, uh, do yoga occasionally, but but no supplements at this time. So what has your health been like since your diagnosis? Well, it's been pretty varied. On the, on the, the good news, I suppose, is on the HIV front, it's been very, very good. I've never never been symptomatic or ill with anything HIV-related. I was curiously, and I think some of the researchers are interested in this, and me, I, I was um, exposed to sort of toxic mold in a building site I worked in, in a retail store for a few years, and I became very ill at that point. I had um, chronic bronchitis and developed asthma and um, esophagitis, inflammation of the esophagus, um, and became quite ill for a few years. But interestingly, at that point, you would think that that would have affected my HIV health. My I still was undetectable, and my viral uh, load was still in the normal range. So I can say I've been blessed with, with maintaining my good long-term health. So when did you realize that something was different about your experience living with HIV? I mean, you read things in the newspaper or you see things in the media or, or you have friends who may be challenged by some symptoms. But when did you think, I'm not having those experiences? That's a good question because it wasn't something that occurred to me until I was asked by my best friend. And and I think we were just generally talking and my friend said, gee, Paul, you know, you know, you haven't been sick. And this was, I think, 1991. So I'd been positive officially since 85. And Many people I knew at that point had gotten sick, and many have, had died at that point. Um, there were no medications for people back then. So my friend said, well, gee, why do you think you're doing so well? So it occurred to me in 1991 that there was something different about me, but I I just thought it was, you know, good fortune or, or being very blessed. And then as the 90s progressed and I came to the desert southwest, my physician said, well, he, you seem to be what might be termed a long-term non-progressor, but it was just sort of a general vague term. I, I still felt very, very fortunate, and, and, and Terry, it was, it, was, it was also scary because at that point you could get a sick and then get quite ill, and so I never knew. I always just assumed that my turn would come. I just assumed HIV back then was fatal and, um, you know, pretty much totally fatal for anyone who had it, and that my time would come. And then the 90s, I went through the 90s and still maintained my good HIV health. And it wasn't until um, around 2000 that I really realized that there might be something something in this term, long-term non-progressor. And I did some Internet searches for long-term non-progressor and just found bits and pieces of information, nothing really solidly. And then a few years ago, I did an Internet search and found um, that there was a study at, at the National Institutes of Health and that people like us existed and there were researchers out there who were seeking us to participate in research in hopes of finding a therapeutic vaccine or a cure. Sorry, so it's been a long time that I've had HIV and, and it just was a slow, slow dawning on me that there was something, you know, different about me. So you're in clinical trials right now to I'm look in, at this specific issue. Yes, I'm in several clinical trials right now. I'm in uh, Bruce Walker at Harvard, his uh, elite controller study, and I'm also in a study at the National Institutes of Health, their long-term non-progressor study. 
I live in Australia. I'm a permanent resident of Australia, and I'm in a uh, trial there, a, a research study there with uh, Professor David Cooper at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. So I'm in three ongoing uh, research trials. So are they all the same trial, or are they all looking at non-progressors but from a different angle? Right. They um, they are all looking at non long-term non-progressors. There are some similarities in the types of things they're looking at. They do have decidedly different things that they're looking at. I, I guess when you do a research trial, you have to have a theory and try to either prove it or sure. prove it. Right. So, and my understanding of it is not that great, but Bruce Harvard is working with a human genome project at the Broad Institute. So he's got his elite controller study in which they look at there are long-term progressors not like myself who are also called elite controllers. I think one reason I am I am one is because I've been positive for so very long, um, and I've been really able to, to control the virus sort of sublimely all that time. So he's working with the Human Genome Project. Um, the National Institutes of Health have had, I just have been emailing Stephen McGillis from the NIH, and their study has been going on now 12 years. So that would have been one of the longest uh, research uh, studies going on long-term non-progressors. And he said to me uh, in an email today, their their median time of their long-term non-progressors is 17 years. Mm. So, and then Professor David Cooper in Sydney, I'm not sure what his what his angle is, but his study has been going on quite a long time as well. So, in the Harvard study, do you know how many people are in the study? Yes, I just found out this information a couple of days ago. They have they they break down their study into two different components. There's elite controllers, and there are 127 elite controllers, and then they're also looking at people called viremic controllers, and those are people who are able to control the virus um, under 2,000 copies and for one year or more without medications. And there are 142 viremic controllers in a Harvard study. So do you have a regular doctor that you see outside of the clinical trials? Yeah, in Australia I um I have just a regular general practitioner and I see him for you know odds and ends that come up. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm you know joyous joyously happy to say and also sad to say I'm middle aged, so I've got <laughs> things that creep up. I, I have a bipolar disorder, so um he helps me with that more than any other health issue that I'd have. So he doesn't address the, your HIV at all, well, or kind of no, peripherally. At this, point, at this point, because I'm I'm so well with the HIV, and because I participate in three ongoing trials, I get my blood taken, as, as most people would with HIV, they'd get their blood taken every three to six months, I believe. I get mine taken on average um, six months in one study or another, so they can follow my viral load if I have one and so they could monitor that and also what my T-cell count is. And my T-cell count has remained basically stable for the whole time it's been taken, so for 15 years or so. So you mentioned that you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Was this after your HIV diagnosis or before? It was after. It was sometime after. So in 85, I got my HIV-positive test result, and then I found out I had bipolar disorder, I believe it was in 1999, and it was um, it was a big blow to hear that, and it was also a relief because I'd it was a relief in that I'd had problems all my life, and now I knew I, there was a reason for it. It was a thing called bipolar disorder. So at least with that information, I got 
was able to start a course of treatment and medication and therapy and and whatnot. So when you say you knew about this all of your life, do you mean even as a child or it was in your adult life? Well, I'd I'd had a problem, you know, uh, what we would now call a mood disorder problem probably since uh, my middle teen years. Okay. But it was never looked at or diagnosed. I, I'd, I had been diagnosed with having depression by my general practitioner years earlier, and I was put on a medication for that. But, but bipolar disorder is, to, you know, altogether different from, from having depression, and the treatments are different. Sure. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any connection between your bipolar disorder and the fact that you're living with HIV? I mean, do you think that that complicates it, or it's not related to... I think it could be related in so much as with bipolar disorder, one of the things you look at to remain stable are triggers, so things that could trigger a change in behavior or a change in attitude or a change in reaction. So if I were to be actively ill with HIV, that would be a huge stressor, which could then trigger a possible, say, manic reaction or depressive episode. So by by being well with HIV, it's certainly helping the bipolar. So a lot of what we look at with bipolar disorder is different triggers and stressors in life, and you try to have a, a life that's manageable with as little stress as possible. Of course, in the modern world, that's pretty challenging, but I do pretty well with that. So for our listeners who may not know what bipolar disorder is, could you give a definition maybe in a layman's term? Well, it used to be called manic depression. So if you look at it that way, it's as, as I understand it, it's a chemical imbalance in the brain. So you can have periods of quite manic, using the term manic highs and depressive lows. Those can often last for years. You can be manic for years. You can be depressive for years. Or you can also do this thing called rapid cycling, which is what I tend to have, which is you go through very manic highs. It's like being on a wild carnival ride, and then you can sort of plummet into depression, and you can do that in an 8- to 12-hour cycle, which is a nightmare, actually. And if it's uncontrolled, you just can't control it. So it's like it's like a very bad roller coaster that you have no control over it. So if you're diagnosed and if you're medicated and, and have uh, talk therapy and, and counseling of how to deal with the stressors in your life, then you're able to, you know, people who have a good outcome, and I have a very good outcome with bipolar disorder, you're able to control it and lead a relatively normal life, meaning you might be able to hold down a job, um, you have good relations with families, coworkers, friends. You know, what, what, we, what we would consider a normal life is often difficult for people with bipolar disorder because of the biochemical imbalance in the brain. It just goes out of whack. It's like an electrical short circuit, and the person can't have any control over their behaviors once it goes. It just, it's just like, uh, like a free radical within you just take off. So for bipolar disorder, it's very important to get a proper diagnosis and, and proper treatment. So since we're talking about psychosocial issues, emotional issues, I was curious as to your experience of living with HIV as a non-progressor maybe versus people in your life who are progressing in their illness and maybe how that might affect you emotionally. Or I'm, I'm assuming that you've witnessed, you know, you've been witness to a lot of things, just stories in the paper or people in your own life who may have 
progressed in their illness, got sick, and possibly have died. Right, and certainly um, as as an out gay male from when I was 18 and then becoming infected in 81, I was still, I think I was 20 at that point, and then officially becoming positive in 85, I, I knew a lot of people who, who became sick and ill, and that was distressing in itself for me then throughout the 80s and most of the 90s, assuming that that would happen to me as well. It was a very stressful, intense time, I just assumed. It, it sort of felt, Terry, like the Grim Reaper was just sort of haunting me, and, and any day now, you know, my card would be called, and, you know, that would be it. So for probably 10, 15 years, I just assumed that my turn would come, and, and you know, seeing people who you loved and admired around you suffering and then dying or taking AZT and suffering on that and then dying a horrible death. Um, it was it was a good portion of my life was in, in a lot of distress. And yet at the same time, there was what is sometimes termed as survivor's guilt. You know, here I, here I am doing really well. And I, I don't really prescribe to guilt per se, but, but you do feel very conflicted, lots of conflicting emotions about why are you so lucky and other people are dying. And today it's a bit different. You know, there are effective medications, at least in the Western world, where we have access to medication and treatment that uh, have better qualities of life and better outcomes for a lot of people. But still, a lot of people don't do well on medications. Um, I think 15,000 people a year in the U.S. die from HIV AIDS. So it's not what is sometimes touted in the media. You take a pill and you thrive and you survive. You know, I think that that that's kind of bullshit. That perception out in the world. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, and and to that end, that's why I, being a long-term non-progressor, participate in in research because it's it's believed among many researchers that long-term non-progressors in our white blood cells or DNA or or whatever molecularly may hold a, a key to to the virus, to coming up with a vaccine or a cure. So so I've taken it sort of for myself personally as a mission to do all that I can to help and research um, both in Australia and the U.S. and just, you know, give blood probably four or five times a year. And, and, and not just give blood, but there's a couple uh, procedures that I undergo at Harvard and um, at the NIH uh, called apheresis or leukophoresis, which is, you're lying on a bed, and they put a tube in your arm, and they, for about an hour and a half, they take out your your blood, they take out your white blood cells, spin it around, and give you back your red blood cells. And every time I do it, it's actually interesting because you're talking about how how do I feel about this this year on my birthday, um, July 16th, I'm going to be having that procedure at the NIH. And as I told uh, Stephen McGillis, the, the main researcher there, I said, you know, it's really a privilege for me to be spending my birthday, I'm going to be 49, what a blessing is that, and to be giving back sort of what I hope is a tangible way to, you know, to the community, but hopefully to the world at large. And and uh, it's sort of a sobering, humbling position to be in. I, you know, not a day goes by, Terry, that I don't feel incredibly fortunate and incredibly blessed to have been given another healthy day. It's, it's phenomenal. Terry, when I was 30, I just often thought, what would it be like to be 40? Do I get to be 40? Do I get to be alive? Do I get to be healthy? So it sounds like your feelings about having HIV have changed over time. Maybe in the beginning it was a little bit more antagonistic, maybe more relationship-based in fear. There was a, there was a lot of fear there, too, but I, I have to say at the same time when I was diagnosed positive, I took, I, I don't know why this was, 
but I just decided, well, okay, here you go. You know, this is not sounding like a good outcome, but I just decided to sort of make the most of every day that I could just to to try to be as positive a person as I could be, to give back to the community, to be kinder to people, to appreciate little things around me. So it actually kind of really bothered my partner at the time because he was really, he was angry and pissed off and hurt and upset about my my diagnosis, HIV positive test result, and I just decided not to focus on all the scary stuff because I just didn't want to live every day being scared and frightened for myself. I thought, you know, I'm not going to have much of a quality of life in the near term if I'm just frightened. And then I thought, I thought, well, if, if the time comes and I'm and I'm ill and I'm suffering, then I'll just try to deal with that as best I can at the time. But I didn't go into it with a bad mindset. So, are you a religious or spiritual person? Yeah, I'm very spiritual. I've been a spiritual person since since I was a teenager. I've studied different kinds of metaphysical things and philosophies and religions, Buddhism, uh, Vedanta is a type of Hindu faith. Um, so when I meditate every day, so yeah, but not not an organized, not not like a Christian religion, if you will. So what is a typical day like for you? Do you work? I do work. My partner and I have a bed and breakfast um, along the ocean in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, yeah I'm very fortunate, Terry. I'm, I'm the, the, the luckiest person I know, actually. So uh, because of the bipolar condition, I'm not able to do a lot, but I get up in the morning, have my coffee, um, check the Internet, check email, um, check online for to see if there's reservations or inquiries for the bed and breakfast. And then if it's the busy season summer there, which is Christmas through February, um, I will greet the guests, make breakfast, uh, act as a host to the B&B, and suggest places they can go along the coast. Uh, to visit and to tour in some great beaches and then see them off for the day and then clean up from breakfast and get ready to, if there's if people have checked out, I'll change the rooms. If people are checking in, we usually know about what time they'll be checking in and then we, we greet them and act as a host. And then by the end of the day, I'm ready to sort of just not deal with the guests anymore and just, just have a quiet dinner with my partner. So that's the busy season, which is about three months out of the year. The rest of the year, I have a just a pretty quiet life, and uh, I go for walks, and I'm working on a memoir, um, partially around the being a long-term non-progressor, uh, about that, and having bipolar disorder, and struggling through different things in my life, and then what it's like to now have be living a good life, and how it is to be fortunate with that. So I'm working on that. I write poetry. I've been po- published as a poet, so... I'm also on national radio in Australia um, on a segment on a national program called Country Viewpoint. So I work on different essays about uh, small-town country life. So how long have you been with your partner? Um, five years. And is, is your partner also living with HIV? No, he's not. He's negative. Well, that brings up, of course, a question about serodiscoordinate couples. and right. And how does that work as far as uh, sex life? Well, you're always safe, and you just sort of get on with it. I mean, to me, it's, you know, you're supposed to have safe sex. That's that's the way you don't infect others, and you don't put others at risk. So we just practice safe sex, and it's not a problem, really. I know in the popular culture today, there's a lot of, seemingly a lot of people who don't want to have safe sex. Um, I don't I don't personally understand that, Um it can be a, a drag, I suppose, to have to wear a condom, but 
given what your alternative is to come down with a chronic or fatal disease, I, I don't see what the big deal about wearing a condom is. So I'm assuming that the latex condoms that you get in Australia are of the same quality and... Same quality, same brands, yep. As, as what we find in the United States. Yes, exactly. And I just ask that because, you know, certainly health educators will say, you know, don't, you know, make sure you buy your condoms that are manufactured by the United States because some of the testing and standards may be a little different in some other countries. Well, that goes to a whole global issue. And when we get so many products and food products and pharmaceuticals now from China, you know, just because it says made in the USA, what does that mean? Does that mean the box is made in the USA? Right. You know, so that's very dubious. That's about uh, uh, issues larger than where, you, you know, something is being branded as made in. So we just have to have a, a sort of a, a test that's a test of our faith that things are safe uh, and effective based on where they're made. So I'm curious as to what made you move to Australia? Well, that's an interesting story. Um, I had met this fellow, and we were dating, and I had just come back to this, this city in the southwest from New York and was not doing terribly well because of the bipolar. I was doing okay, but not not feeling so great. Um, I was stable on medications and all that, but just not feeling terribly good about things. Anyway, so we were dating, and, and, and this, this fellow knew that I had a field in hospitality. I was a chef, a chef for many years. So one day he called me up. He said, oh, I need to talk to you. And I thought, oh, no, what does that mean? So we're talking. He says, well, you know, I have a bed and breakfast in Australia, and I need a manager, and perhaps you'd like to come and manage my bed and breakfast. And I'm like, oh. And we weren't, like, committed as dating. We were dating, but we weren't committed. And he gave me a free round-trip airfare and said, you can leave whenever you want. And I thought, well, that's not a bad deal. So I went, and then our, over time our relationship became more and more serious and more and more dedicated to one another. And then he, over time, he sponsored me for as his partner for immigration in Australia. In Australia, gay and lesbian couples can sponsor one another for, for immigration. So he sponsored me for immigration, and I just, after two and a half years, just got my permanent residency in uh, January for Australia. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And that was an arduous trip because they have a, a rule in Australia that if you're HIV positive, you can't immigrate to their country. They don't they don't want you, and that's based on health care assessment in terms of the cost, the associated cost. And I was able to, working with researchers who I work with, get some letters of support uh, saying that as long-term non-progressor, I was not likely to develop any health care costs associated with HIV. So we think that's why we, we prevailed on it, was based on a long-term non-progressor, although we're not sure they didn't give us a reason why we prevailed. And um, interestingly enough, along those lines, last year there were 10, um, 10 people with HIV uh, were able to immigrate to Australia, and now the prime minister it being an election year, is saying we don't want anyone with HIV to come here. And they, he said some draconian thing a few weeks back that they perhaps didn't even want anyone with HIV to visit. So that's been sort of dropped, but that caused a huge outroar. And I, I, you might have had something in the body on that. The magazine Pause had something on that. So. so do you have dual citizenship between Australia and the United States? Yeah, right now I have. I'm a citizen of the U.S., and I have a per permanent residency visa for Australia. I have to wait two years before I can become a citizen in Australia, and at that point, and I will do that. And I also, um, 
uh, agreement between the two countries is you can carry dual citizenship, so I'll maintain my American citizenship as well. Because if you dropped your United States citizenship, that may affect you coming into our country as a positive person? Well, as I understand the law now, you're not allowed to come in if you're HIV positive. Right. Yeah. So So that's why I ask, if you dropped your United States citizenship, would then that be a challenge for you to come over to the States to participate in the clinical trials? It would be. The way that I understand it through I read this this thing online called HMEDS forums, people do get around that all the time. Either you put your pills, if you're on medication, you put your pills in different vials or... Um, you ship them to a friend, or there's different things that you can do. I don't think they really have been clamping down on that um, in the U.S. for many years. But it does give you pause for thought of, you know, gee, why, what would happen if they didn't let me back into the country I was born and raised in and paid taxes in and, you know, was a good citizen of. So it's, it's I think any time you immigrate, there's, there's complex issues to deal with, and certainly that would be one of them. So let me ask you, what is the healthcare system like in Australia? Well, it's, yes, it's excellent, actually. Uh, if you're a legal resident, which um, pretty much everyone is, uh, if you have a work visa or a business visa or uh, anything like that other than a tourist visa, you're entitled to the national healthcare system, which is free to everybody. There are co-pays, but it's free to everybody. If you draw an income there, I think 1% of your income goes to health care costs. So everybody pays in, um, and everyone has access to it. You can get private health care as well, and you get sort of added bonuses to that um, health care. But, um, yeah, so the health care system there is great. You don't have, you don't have like in this country, I don't know what is it, in the U.S. there's 40 million people who don't have health insurance. So, so you can, if you need to go in an emergency room, you can go to an emergency room. If you need to see a doctor, you can see a doctor. If you need specialized care, you see you get specialized care. Um, the one thing that's really interesting, and I found this just shocking when I moved there, my um, bipolar medications here, if I don't have insurance in the U.S., come to $1,100 a month, um, which is, you know, if you, if, you, if you're bipolar and you can't work, $1,100 a month is nearly impossible, especially if you have to pay rent and buy food. In Australia, that same the same medication, same dosages is $95 a month. So it's a much better system. Well, let me ask you about your friends and family. And I guess I'm curious about um, when you first found out about your HIV status in the mid-'80s, what were your family and friends' reactions when you told them that? And then the second part of the question is, how have these relationships changed since you've been living so long? Would you say that maybe the reactions were different, and now that you've been living longer, maybe they have a different opinion or perspective about the HIV diagnosis? Well, I think initially we were all shocked, so my friends and family. I didn't tell my folks um, when I found out. Um, it seemed like it would have been a burden to them. Since I was well, it seemed like it would have been a burden for them. To hear that, so I didn't tell my folks. I told my brothers, and all my best friends knew, and uh, everyone just sort of rallied, rallied around me. And I think people started praying for me and uh, offering words of encouragement and support. And friends said, "This is a long time ago now, too." But friends said, "You know, if you ever, if you ever get ill or need help, you can stay with us, and we'll take care of you." You know, so there were, you know, there were, 
really strong voices of support, um, not just encouragement, but support. And I, I just felt, you know, um, Terry, if, if, if I did have a bad outcome, that I would be taken care of. So that certainly took a bit of pressure off me in terms of wondering what, what, what might happen to me. And then as time, I did finally tell my folks, my parents, I told them when I was having those health problems uh, associated with the toxic mold incident because I felt that my health might indeed be in jeopardy. So I actually had to quit where I was working and I needed some financial help. So I, I felt that I needed to tell them why I was quitting. So I told them, I think in 95. And then moving forward to the second part of your question, I think we're all just sort of, my friends and family are just sort of in a sense of wonder and amazement that I'm still doing so well. And we just feel that, that I'm a very, very blessed individual to have had this outcome. And, you know, we don't, we don't know why. We just sort of shrug our shoulders and look, look heavenward, if you will. I'm like, you know, what a blessing this is. Um, but I think, too, people still wonder, I wonder, not I don't. I don't dwell on it, but I, I still wonder if, if at some point I might stop being a long-term non-progressor. Um, so I don't take. That's not a day goes by. I don't. I don't take for granted. Meaning, I really appreciate every day that goes by. So we're just sort of collectively holding our breath. We don't think about it too much and hope that that my good fortune continues. So you've mentioned that several times that maybe almost kind of anticipatory change in your status. Have you kind of mentally made plans? Like, if all of a sudden I started progressing, what would that be like? What might my life look like? Well, I haven't put a lot of thought into it other than I know that I'm a, I'm in a country that will take care of me. Um, in the U.S., depending, I suppose, on what state you live in, you may get, you know, I think there's some scary states down south that don't fund um, ADAP enough, so you may or may not get help or assistance. You know, in Australia, if you're not able to work and you're ill, um, you have public housing assistance, you have food assistance, all of your medication and your doctors would be paid for. So if I were to get ill, I'm in a country that would take care of me. And so that's a huge relief to me. Um, I think that I would feel um, that things would be a bit better for me now if I were to get ill than certainly in the 80s where there was no, where there were no medications. Um, HIV medications, or even AZT, which was for many people a nightmare, I think. So I think that I would be in a, as good a position as anybody who would be, say, diagnosed now to have a likely better outcome than, than a bad outcome. So if there was a change in your health, you would not be opposed to going on medication? I would have to look at the current research. I think they, they say now that if your T-cells uh, drop Different people have different ways of looking at it. I've read some some places if your T-cells drop below 200, then you should go on meds. Perhaps not until then. Some some people, I think if you're newly diagnosed, some physicians uh, advocate early um, HIV medication treatment, so I don't know where I would go with that. I think the medications that are coming out these days, some are better with less side effects, but some people can't take those. Some side effects are really horrendous and give you can give you a poor quality of life. So I would think I would try to not go on medication until I thought it was um, necessary, or not what I thought, but in consultation with my physician. 
And since I'm in all these um, different research projects, I have access to some of the best researchers on HIV really in the world. So I would I would seek their advice as well. I would be treated, however, in Australia. So. So were you ever, throughout the years, ever tempted to start medication? I would imagine in 85, it may have been very tempting. Well, it would have, but there was nothing in 85. Um, I, th- I don't know when AZT came. I think it was 87. Did it come along that early? Okay. Mm-hmm. I knew someone who went on it in 89 and had a, it's hard to say if he had a rough go of it because of the medication or because his health were deteriorating. I don't know if I would have been, and I was well, so I know, and I was not getting, the tests weren't as as um, well-developed as they are now. When I got to the, the southwestern town that I I live in part of the year here, I had a very good physician here, and, and he said that he saw, based on my numbers and my health, that there's absolutely no reason to even consider going on medications, that he'd seen people who had problems with medications, so why... You know, why mess up a good thing if you're well, if your numbers are good? Um, he didn't see it as being necessary as a preventative. So it never just occurred to me to, to do that. And it's interesting in, in relation to that, that there there could be a lot more long, I don't know about a lot more, there could be some more long-term non-progressors who would be treatment naive if they hadn't gone on meds, say, back in the 90s. So what do you feel like on a daily basis is kind of your contribution to you staying well? I guess I'm curious about like your diet and you've talked about your positive attitude and that you walk, but I'm curious about some other things that maybe you do that maybe we haven't talked about. Well, in in terms of being well, I'll just say a little bit of backstory about myself. When I was living in New York City um, back in 2000, I became unwell with with the bipolar condition. I wasn't on medication at that point. I became highly manic, and I checked myself into a psych, psych ward, which is not a place anyone ever wants to go to if they don't have to. So I realized at that point that my main job in my life was just to be well. So getting back to your question, so what do I do to be well? I go, I get regular sleep. I go to, to bed basically at the same time every night. I get up the same time every day. I don't do drugs um, People can do them if they want, but I don't do, you know, cocaine or speed or marijuana. I don't um, smoke cigarettes. I do drink coffee. I do have um, some wine. I have an excellent diet. Being a chef, it's really easy for me to prepare, you know, tasty, nutritious meals. So my diet is really good. I have a wonderful support system of family and friends, people who are nurturing and encouraging and supportive of me. I work at a business that's based at, at home, so I don't. I'm my own boss, so I don't have the stressors of, of maybe having an angry boss or dysfunctional coworkers. Um, I live in a, a small town of a thousand people that's surrounded by ocean and a national park, um, surrounded by wildlife. I've got a very quiet, tranquil life. When I'm back in Australia, I swim um, either in summer in the ocean or in a pool in winter three days a week. I go for walks every day. I meditate um, regularly. I pray. Um, gosh, what else do I do? <laughs> so, and I, and I do this with all regularity. It's just all of that is just a fundamental part of my life. I don't think necessarily, oh, I need to do this now or I need to do that. It's just part of my life. And I and I've been doing that a long time, you know, for many many years anyway. But but I do it sort of more consciously because I know by doing all of those things that I'll be more well with the bipolar 
this ward, and which will keep me out of the psych ward, which is a primary goal to never have to go back into a psychiatric ward. So are there ever times where maybe you miss your swim for the week, and do you, can you tell a difference? Like, I feel a little off this week. I can tell that I miss swimming or walking or... Yet another good question. It's it's interesting. Well, when I was much younger, I was a ballet dancer, so I was, you know, I was dancing 60 hours a week and swimming and doing all that. So I'm sort of a bit addicted to being in good shape. But, but now that I'm, that I'm older and I don't perhaps have as much time or the pool's farther away, if I say don't swim for a week or two weeks, I really notice a difference. And I just don't feel, you know, as, as at peace with myself, as calm as fit. Maybe it's a matter of endorphins or oxygenating the blood. I'm not sure. So when I when when I realize that I haven't been for a swim or been for a long walk, then I go, well, this is the day. And I just because we're next to the national forest, I can just get up and, and go for a long walk and a half hour out in in the bush in the forest and just feel sort of re-energized. So I do notice that, yes, very much so. It's coming kind of close to the end of us chatting, okay. but I was curious about what are your fears or your hopes for the next generation as people face the risk of HIV? My fears are that people won't practice safe sex because it's simple to do that, to wear a condom. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. I think if you go to bars and clubs, they even give out free condoms. So um, and public health services would do that. So I don't think they're difficult to access particularly. I think there's problems with drugs where sometimes people aren't as mindful as they need to be when they're having sex, so they need to have a bit of forethought about that and just be prepared, so carry some with them perhaps if they think they're going to be in a position where they're going to have sex and they want to, they should be safe. Um, my hopes are, my hopes are many. My hopes are that better medications will come along that are more affordable, that access to them in developing countries countries will be affordable for their standard of living, not based on what we would charge here. Um, my hopes are partly why I'm participating in research is that through the long-term non-progressors is that we may be able to develop therapeutic vaccines or even a cure in time. I know that's a long trajectory to get there, but... Um, there are many people diligently working on this, so my hopes would be that that would happen as well. I, I tend to be more optimistic, I think. We've made great progress since I was likely infected in 81, and then people were dazed, confused, and scared to death. Um, so we've come a long way, and more people are being saved. Um, but I, I'd hope that people would take precaution and, and get tested. If you think, you know, if you think that you're positive, you might be or that you might be exposed, you know, give a good think about it and, and perhaps consider getting tested. Um, if you are positive, a good way to stay healthy is to get treatment and medication. And and I know that I was putting down the U.S. healthcare system, but I, I do think that for many people that, that for HIV, that their healthcare access is probably okay for many people, at least in urban centers, at least in blue states. <laughs> I didn't mean to get political on you there. Right. right. So I before, I just thought of something that I wanted to ask you that you've mentioned a couple of things. You said, I think that I was infected in 81. Yeah. What What makes you think you were infected in 81? Well, I'd had um, a sexual relations, sex, sexual intercourse with a few guys who later became very sick with things that would be um, – 
considered precursors to getting AIDS and dying. And one fellow I saw about a month later, and he was very scared and very nervous, and I went over to his place, and he showed me these purple lesions on his hand. So that would be the, the capacity. So I have no doubt that, that that's when I was infected. Okay. If I can just say one thing, sure. if I'm allowed to say something. I have a friend that I met through the um, Harvard Elite Controller Studies, and her name is Lorene Willenberg, and she's known to some of the readers and listeners at The Body. And she um, and I have been talking for some time about trying to start a, a nonprofit foundation for long-term non-progressors that would get word out on the Internet. So for some of us who are looking for information about research studies, et cetera, um, that they might find access, easy, easy access on the Internet to information about studies, whatnot. And we're, we're hoping to call that the Zephyr Foundation. Um, and I just wanted to let listeners know that we're looking to try to recruit, help the researchers recruit more people because there are actually many research studies around the country and around the world, and there's an impediment to finding them if you're a long-term non-progressor and just information out on the Internet. Um, so we're hoping to to get this thing going called Zephyr Foundation. Um, and then if, if there could be funding for that nonprofit, that there might be, depending on what kind of funding could be, that there could be money in that to actually assist long-term non-progressors get to some of these studies, um, so airfare, hotel costs. Um, I, there's a prominent uh, study here in the U.S., um, that I can't get to, I can't afford to, to go to the location where it's uh, being held and they can't afford to fly me there. And it seems to me that that's kind of a missed opportunity. There's a, a researcher in Europe as well who's welcomed me to that study and I can't get there, I can't afford, and they don't have the money. So this Zephyr Foundation, if it, if it were to come about, and hopefully it will, would go towards help funding long-term non-progressors participate in studies. So that's something that Laureen uh, Willenberg and I are, are trying to work on. Great. So I want to thank you, Paul, for um, chatting with us today. Well, thank you, too. And good luck to you. And thank you very much. I really appreciate it. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.